Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Turfgrass Epistemology's first evening podcast. I hope it goes well. I um, am here by myself. My wife is out of town and I'm here taking care of two kids. So, and plus I'm not really doing too well. I'm kind of under the weather at the moment. So I'm hoping that we can get through this um, with few distractions from little feet running down the stairs to <laughs> come ask me to be quiet. <laughs> so thank you all for joining me. Turfgrass epistemology. Um, we'll see how this goes. Hopefully this is a little bit, uh, we have a little bit different crowd or more of the same crowd, um, different time period. Hopefully uh, everybody's off work and had a good day today. And um, we'll see how it goes. Real quick, I don't think I've ever actually bothered explaining what turfgrass epistemology is. Maybe I should do that on a video and post it as a entry video for the channel. But epistemology is the study of knowledge. This sort of sounds circular a little bit if you're unfamiliar with the term, but basically, you know, the, the, the phrase that I use is, you know, how do we know what we know about turfgrass science? And so the idea is that epistemologists who I, of which I am not, okay, I, I struggle with that daily trying to learn more about it, but um, we re they really try to f figure out, you know, what is knowledge? How, how do we know what we know? Do we really know anything? You know, those are deep philosophical questions. But in the world of turf grass in this channel, what I'm really hoping to uh, provide is, um, you know, uh, information or knowledge about how we critically review information and one of the new one of the early uh episodes we did was with uh, my wife who's a um, here at university of kentucky and she went over the hierarchy of evidence and helped us um, understand how we prioritize information what information is uh more valuable than other information is probably an easy way to say that um you know so that you know as we move up the that pyramid of evidence, we become more confident in the information and we have, when we become more confident in, um, our position on certain issues based upon where the information came from on that pyramid. So that's kind of the world of epistemology, you know, gaining confidence and, and helping guide our beliefs and our convictions based upon the best available evidence. That's in my world, you know, the, how, how we know, in my view, how do we know what we know? You know, what's the best way to get knowledge or how confident can we be with the information that we get? And, um, so that's what epistemology is. Um, thank you for joining me, Gray. I don't, I, and I apologize. I don't really know everybody's name. I'm new to this whole thing. <laughs> so I apologize. I'm not even sure if you're male or female. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'm doing my best to kind of get my feet wet in this world, but um, LW50, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I apologize. I need to get more involved with the, with the, um, discord channel and, and more chit chatty and learn, learn more about you, you people, you, you folks. So, but I see Brady and gray and B butcher and Eric and Evie does it. So thank you all for joining me. I hope you're finding the information useful and not too burdensome. Um, I, I, I know a lot of this information is scientific and very dry 
and I'm very dry. <laughs> I have never been accused of being entertaining. That's for sure. So, um, so it, I know it's sometimes challenging to understand this, this information and but my, my really is sincerely what I want to try to provide is just a layman's explanation as to what happened and, and, and it's not me doing it right. I'm, I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't do this. I'm I, occasionally I opine. Yes. Um, but it's really the author's work, you know, so, um, and even the authors aren't saying to do this. They're just explaining what they found. You know, they're, they're showing what they did and explaining what they found. And they provide some, hopefully provide some practical, um, recommendations or information at the end for people to, to apply the information. But, um, that's basically in a nutshell, kind of what I'm hoping to accomplish and why I'm here. Um, so if you have any questions or any, um, papers or topics you would like for me to delve into, please let me know. I'll just say this from the beginning. I know almost nothing about plant pathology, about um, weed biology, about nematology. Um, <laughs> I, am, I am completely ignorant when it comes to those things. Um, my world is, is nutrition and soils and fertility and those things. So um, I'll do what I can in those areas, but really it would be someone explaining a paper and as you know as best i can but i really wouldn't have the the insight or the knowledge to really provide a lot of critical review or content of the paper i would just be able to help decipher it or explain it in a layman's layman's term so um so anyway so this is the fall let's get into the paper so um this is the fall we're uh last several episodes we've been talking about fertility talking about um what to do during establishment um what people have been finding so this we have two or three more papers i keep saying we have one more paper and then i find two or three more that i want to go over but um we have um two or three more papers that i want to make sure we cover um today we're going to go over we're going to go over today and then we have one on fall fertility of of warm season grasses we have another one on cool season grasses and then we have a third one on phosphorus requirements of cool season grasses during establishment as well. So um, all that will be gone over, um, I guess, tomorrow and then next week. So we're we still on the fall fertility, establishment fertility topic. I think it's that time of year people are looking for information or, or doing making changes to their programs. So we're still doing that. Okay, this is the paper we're talking about today, guys and gals. Nitrogen fertilizer and clover inclusion effects on establishment of fine fescue taxa. Now, I've, I've been going over the abstract and I've been going over where to go find these papers. I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing that. I'm just going to tell you, you can Google this, Google Scholar this. You can turfgrass information file. You can search on turfgrass information file and find it. You can go to your library and search on the library's um, computers there and find this uh, article. But if you're looking for you know, does clover help, um, you know, cool season grass establishment or whatever. You can just Google that and eventually you're going to come across several papers, but this is one of them. This is published in 2022 in crop science. Okay. So I'm actually going to skip the abstract too today. I'm going to get in this because I, I want to talk, there's this particular paper talks about, um, a couple different, uh, species, but it also talks about fertility. And that's what I'm interested in is the fertility component. And I've, when I highlighted what I want to talk about, dang near the whole manuscript was highlighted. So I want to get to this so I don't spend three hours talking about one paper. <laughs> okay. Um, 
All right. So the introduction, as you as you all know, it's going to they're going to set the stage. Why is this? Why are we doing this? What's the problem? What are we observing? And then they're going to provide the hypothesis at the end of the introduction. So a couple of things I've highlighted is oh, just real quick. The, the authors. Well, I can't name all the authors, but it's by Ross Braun, who's now at um, what is it? Can, uh, I just emailed him earlier. He's Kansas State, I guess. He was at uh, Purdue, I think. And now he's at Kansas State. Anyway, um, Braun et al are the authors dr Patton and dr watkins are on here and i don't mean to leave anybody out but there's like six authors okay a couple of highlights in the introduction um okay five five fine fescue taxes uh, five fine fescue taxa used in turf grass systems are collectively known as grouping fine fescues and talk all about it it's like, it goes and talks about the different um low input fescues and so forth and it says okay in addition fine fescues can maintain acceptable turf grass quality and better resist and better resist summer annual grassy and perennial broadleaf weed invasion than other types of turf grass species such as tall fescue and kentucky bluegrass when maintained at low to moderate annual end fertilization levels now at one and two pounds of nitrogen remember 49 is one pound so 49 98 or one and two pounds of nitrogen per thousand so i want to make sure we're clear before we go too much further when they say things like this when they say when the author says um fine fescue can be maintained acceptable to our quality and it can better resist whatever compared to this and then they cite those citations the authors aren't saying that's the case in every situation they're saying that's the case in the situation cited by those authors and the reason i say that is because what what he's saying here what ross is saying in this paper in the introduction about better resist uh, annual grassy and perennial broadleaf weeds invasion and other turf so, and so forth is true from the authors that wrote those papers but in Kentucky, here in Lexington, we found that fine fescues, over the research we've been doing here, or have done here, it's closed now, but that the fine fescues struggle here in Lexington, primarily due to the heat. Okay, so as, a, as compared to tall fescues. Okay, so tall fescues tend to be a better, a more suitable turf grass here in Lexington than the fine fescues. Okay, or even bluegrass. So... Uh, just be mindful when you're reading this that it's not i don't think ross is intending to say this is the case in all situations i'm sure that's not what he's saying he's simply making a case that fine fescues are suitable and more suitable than these other grasses based upon what these authors have found in the past but don't take that as okay braun and who, who did he quote here at sean Askew and uh, two or three other authors here all said that fine fescues are better, so I'm going to go out and plant fine fescues in southern Tennessee. Okay, okay. you're not going to be happy with that, probably. Okay, so you don't, don't, don't take. You have to take the information from within the context that it was provided, and in the context that it was provided in this case, it was very likely colder climates, like in up in Indiana or in, you know wherever they did those studies at Wisconsin or whatever. Okay, so be mindful of that. Okay, it goes through and continues to explain some fine fescue information. It says additional research would allow for better understanding of BMPs for fine fescue for fine fescues to overcome an intermediate establishment vigor, which is important because it's, it can influence the plant's competitiveness with weeds, thus reducing the need for herbicide inputs. So what he's saying here is that <clears throat> the value of hastening the establishment time is critical or important in according to him according to the, the Har harper ross and harper here and ac apparently according to ross who wrote the paper 
it's important because it can it can uh, increase the, the plant's uh, likelihood of competition for space with weeds and reduce the amount of herbicides you have to apply later on. So and you've heard me say say before on uh, previous podcasts is that I'm not particularly concerned about hastening um, establishment. <coughs> I don't really care about that. Um, the average turfgrass manager probably would. The average homeowner, I, I don't know. Maybe they would, maybe they won't. I don't. But he's saying that if you do this, you're likely to result in these benefits. Okay. One well-known way to enhance establishment vigor is providing nitrogen and phosphorus fertilization at seeding and during establishment. Now, I do not take that sentence as very solid or sound. And the reason I say that is there is clearly evidence where that's the case. There is also clearly evidence where that's not the case. Okay. So when you say a well, it says well-known way to, to enhance establishment is to apply phosphorus. That is there's literature that clearly shows that, but there's also, I would say probably equal or greater literature that says applying phosphorus is not useful in terms of hastening establishment, especially on soils that contain high phosphorus. Okay. So be careful when you're reading this, don't take that as, you know, literal, you know, it, 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 it's, it is true. Phosphorus helps in some situations, but not always. It says Chang reported the germination and establishment of strong creeping red fescue showed minimal to no response to the application of phosphorus or increasing phosphorus levels, unlike Kentucky bluegrass or creeping red. And we're going to review this Chang paper next week. This, he found phosphorus did show a response. So that's the, I guess that's the spoiler alert because the paper is, you know, do you need to apply phosphorus basically? And he found that it, he did need to, but it was on low phosphorus soils. It was, um, I haven't, I don't remember that paper, but it's something like, um, I think he used the Olson extractant and it was, I think 10 or 12 parts per million phosphorus using the Olson. So it was low in phosphorus and he found a response for applying phosphorus and Chang did. We'll review that paper next week. <clears throat> Braun et al reported application of nitrogen at three quarters of a pound of N and half a pound of P from a starter fertilizer had minimal M minimal effect on the rate establishment for a fine fescue mixture. So here's the same author, Ross did another paper, another research, and he found that there really wasn't a benefit to applying a, a establishment fertilizer or pre-plant fertilizer or whatever you want to call it. Okay. <clears throat> so he's again, just going through the literature, explaining the case, explaining the situation. I'm gonna get through the, the introduction and I'll start answering the questions that are in the chat. Just one second, guys. Inclusion of an, uh, okay, so this is all, so nitrogen, and so the question is how much nitrogen do we need to apply? Do we need to apply phosphorus? But also there is this um, concept in agriculture of growing clover at the time where your crops are not growing, fixing some nitrogen and then planting a crop the next season into the clover mixture. The idea being that the clover would fix the nitrogen and provide some nitrogen to your crop. And so the, the possibility exists in turf grass to do something similar, to include a clover that would fix the nitrogen out of the air without applying fertilizer and provide some nitrogen that way. <laughs> so he, he provides a little bit of background. Inclusion of, of a nitrogen-fixing legume species at establishment could be a potential alternative to infertilization. 
However, few experiments have examined the influence of cover crops on, a, on turf grass establishment, including a low-growing legume such as white clover would also support the growing interest in flowering bee lawn turf mixture. So he's building a case to pursue a research uh, question, should we include clovers? It's possible it provides, it's biologically plausible that it could provide some nitrogen, and it also provides uh, a environment for honeybees or for for bees to to flourish as well so there's a case to be made to pursue this as a as a research objective the inclusion of clover therefore our objectives our objective was to investigate differences among fine fescue taxa and determine optimal nitrogen fertility or clover inclusion programs for fine fescue taxa during establishment for future low input sites okay so if you're not aware by now there is a great deal of revenue and research funding spent on development of genetics in turf grass. So better genetics in our turf grass species. And a large amount of that interest is designed around low input. So if you're familiar with um, NTEP, National Turf Grass Evaluation Program, they fund a lot of these studies. Also, there's a there's an association called ALIS, the um, the low input sustainable turf grass association or low input sample turf grass, I believe is what it stands for. And they're looking at not just what's the best, the prettiest grass in the block. They're looking to see which of these grasses is acceptable or higher quality given low water, low fertility, low herbicides and, you know, increased heat or whatever. They're looking to see which ones of those, um, they can promote to, um, reduce the amount of input required to maintain our lawns. And really uh, this, uh, you hear this occasionally, but I, I really, I, I really, uh, it, uh, I think it's true is that the amount of trials that we do around the United States, particularly say NTEP and A-list, we'll do 20, 30, 40, 50 different turf grass cultivars and species all in this, all in one study sometimes. And only a handful actually make it to the top and the other ones don't usually make it to market or, or they do and they're, they, they're not, they're not at the top of the list though. So let's just, let's just say hypothetically that the ones at the bottom get thrown away. Those ones that get thrown away are vastly superior to probably what you have in your lawn. Now, if you have a, a, a lawn that's more than say 15 or 20 years old. So the reason I'm saying that is imagine how good the grasses are that make it to the top of that list and make it in the bags from your seed blenders. Okay. Genetics is immensely important in today's, uh, ecosystems in our, in our urban lawns. If you're dealing with God forbid, Kentucky 31, <laughs> which is not supposed to be in Kentucky lawns, get it out. Don't buy it. It's, it's a, it's not what we recommend in Kentucky. But if you're dealing with any of the older tall fescues, I'm not saying go rip it out and kill it and replace it. I'm not saying that. But if you are in a situation where you are considering doing that and you're like, hey, I'm going to replace my lawn, the, the newer varieties, the newer cultivars are greatly superior in terms of water, in terms of water, water use, in terms of nutrient use, pesticide use, disease tolerance, and all these things. They're much, much better. So genetics plays a huge role. And he's going to look at that a little bit in this, in this study. Okay. So let's talk about the locations and the site details where they did these studies. They conducted them in Indiana, Oregon, and in Minnesota. The Indiana, well, I'm just going to, yeah, the Indiana soil pH was 6.7, Oregon was 6.3, and Minnesota was 5.7. 
uh, let's talk about the phosphorus here. The phosphorus in Indiana was 58 and 63, and that was Bray 1 extractable phosphorus. And in Oregon, it was 64. It looks like Oregon was Bray 1 as well. I guess they did it all Bray 1. I thought Oregon did Malik 3 up in Oregon, but um, apparently all the phosphorus was Bray 1. So it's 58, 63, and Oregon was 64, and Minnesota was 120. So all of these Bray P phosphorus um, levels uh, were certainly adequate, is the, is the setting. So we're in Indiana, we're in Oregon, we're in Minnesota, and the phosphorus levels in the soil were suitable or acceptable levels. Okay, let me, let me back up here and let's start reading the chat. I'm, I'm losing track of the chat. I'm only one man, so give me, <laughs> give me, give me a second here. Um, Oh, yeah, I'll talk. Yeah, yeah. Rutgers has some good. My thoughts is half pound in per thousand feet before we get further. So. Oh, yeah, Evie. So the, the comment in the chat is the same can be said for the newer fine fescues. So many people are used to used to 20, 30 year old fine fescues that are so much worse than the newer cultivars today. I, I don't know if that can really be stated uh, strongly enough, really. I, I, it, it, you know, we're in the world and we're in turf and you're here listening to this because you're in turf and we, we're familiar with these things, but the average homeowner isn't. And so when you go, when the average homeowner, you try to explain to them, yeah, this turf grass variety is something you probably don't want to use, or this one is something you do want to use. <coughs> they may not really understand the gravity of that comment. I mean, it, it's, I mean, the analogy is sort of lame and whatever, but it's really like driving an old clunker car for the last 30 years and it's worn out and you just want to keep putting air in those tires. You want to keep changing the spark plays and you're putting more money into it, keeping it running than you would if you just let it go and got a new car of the newer variety, the more efficient vehicle. So at some point you're putting so much into it, so much water or moisture or whatever, or, or nutrients or whatever, that it's just no longer economically viable. And it's time to go ahead and let that grass <laughs> move on and get a new cultivar. It's not the same grass you had, I can assure you. And for the most part, and, and I'm, I'm probably going to be wrong on this, but, but for the most part, when I've looked at the big box, I don't ever buy anything from the big, big box stores. I end up going to seed blenders like from the seed companies themselves, and I buy it just like you buy it. Okay, I don't get it for free. I buy it in a bag and they ship it to me because I know the varieties in there are hundred percent turf type tall fescue or hundred percent, you know, uh, fine fescues or whatever. It's not blended with stuff in there like perennial rye. That's just there for the homeowner to see it germinate in three days and turn green and then die in six months. I know what I'm getting is what I want. But when you go to the big box stores and you look at the, the varieties of the turfs, I do want like say turf type tall fescue. The varieties in there are are good varieties. I mean, there may not be the top tier varieties that you get from some of the other seed companies, but they're still much, much better than what you have in your lawn, more than likely. So um, just be aware of that. The, the genetics, to, I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago so much because there really, I mean, there was some improvements. I mean, Tiff Eagle and obviously the 419s of the world, they've been out for a long, long time, but but there has been a great deal of movement in that in that area of our science in terms of genetics and turf grasses and it makes a huge difference so don't underestimate that okay yeah so lw50 so 
at what point do the, do the input economics give way to a renovation? And, and that's a succinct way of saying what I said. Yeah. So at some point you got to realize I'm spending way too much time and effort trying to keep this grass alive. It's, you know, but they, but they may not realize that a newer turf would solve that problem. They may think, Oh, I'm just going to put another turf in here. I'm going to have the same problem. Well, you might, but it probably not, might not. I mean, it's a different, different turf, better genetics. All right, let's keep going through here. So nitrogen fertilization and cover crop program treatment level in this experiment. So I'm going to go through this because the, the nutrient uh, component of this is what I'm interested in. I uh, know they have, there's an, the other component is the turf grasses, but so the nutrient treatments basically. So one, they had a um, non-treated, which is right here. So non-treated was one of their treatments. They had 24.5 kilograms, which is a half a pound of N at seeding. They had one pound of N at seeding. Then they had um, a pound, a pound, I guess that's a pound and a half, pound and three quarters, whatever that is. And, but they had a pound at seeding plus, or, so a half a pound at seeding and then a pound at four weeks after. So they did a half, uh, a half a pound when they seeded it and they put a pound down a month later. Then they did a pound at seeding and one pound much, a month later. And then the next one, they did a pound at seeding and then a pound a month later, and then a half a pound a month after that. So this is actually, I would like to talk to Ross about this because this is actually reverse of what I did on my master's where on my master's, we did a low rate and then we slowly increased it. And here they're doing, oh, well, they did that on this treatment. They did a low rate and then they slowly increased. But the next one's like a, a full rate and then a full rate and then a full rate, a full rate and a half rate. Um, but the concept is still there, a progressive sort of application program of like adding more nitrogen as it, as the turf continues to, to develop. So those are the nitrogen application uh, treatments. Then they did an annual clover cover with no nitrogen. And the, the clover cover, clover was a frosty bursine, bursine clover. I can't even pronounce that. Yeah. And then they did a, per, oh, that was an annual clover they planted. And then they did another plot with a perennial clover uh, treatment. Those are the two treatments that they were trying to do to see if the, the inclusion of a legume would, would offset some of the nitrogen or provide some nitrogen, at least suitable for grow in. They didn't apply any um, mineral for, or synthetic fertilizer to that. Okay. So those are the treatments. The form of nitrogen was, okay, quick release and urea. Okay, so it was quick release nitrogen for urea, okay, at seeding. And then they use slow release uh, urea at the, the, when they, if they applied it one month after they did a slow release urea. <coughs> it was a polymer coat of urea at, after that, okay? Okay. So the experimental site design and management field field experiments were repeated across two years at two locations, Indiana and Oregon, and one year at a third location, Minnesota. Okay. So the Minnesota site only had one year. So that's a pretty strong study though. I mean, two years at two locations is not common, um, but it's, that's, that's robust for sure. I mean, we, what we, requ what we require is two years in a location to get published in these top journals. And he did two years in two locations plus one year in the third location. So that's very good providing five replications across time and location. These experiments were initiated in all three locations in autumn of 2019. So this was just finished a year or two ago and it's already published. So good job for, for Ross and the other authors getting this out. 
They did it in locations that represent cool season or northern transition climate climatic zones. So that's where we're at. So this is why we're in the fine fescue world. And that's why he's talking about fine fescues tend to be a little bit better than tall fescues in some instances. Because they're in the, the cool season world. They're not in the transition world like I am here in Lexington where we see tall fescue generally be more acceptable. The species, okay, so the species main effect included four fine fescue tacks. And he goes through the fine, the fine fescues that he used. So this is the main effect, was the four different fine fescues. And then, okay, then the fertility and cover crop program main effect included, <coughs> I'm sorry, I still got a cough for like the last week. I don't know when I'm going to get rid of this cough. <clears throat> it included eight nitrogen fertility or cover crop treatments, which I just went over. Okay, six, I'm not going to go over it again. Um, I just explained the, the fertility program. Prior to seeding, the soil was tilled at each site and a starter fertilizer of triple superphosphate was applied at a rate of 22 kilograms, of, so a half a pound of pea across the entire study. And I kind of, you know, I just highlighted this and it is what it is. This is common on all, all these studies. But when you're dealing with a soil, a, a research site that has more than adequate phosphorus right here, everything's at 60 or greater. I don't know if it's in our best interest as scientists to to do this just to cover our basis for the from the scientific perspective. In other words, sometimes we'll do things just to ensure that it wasn't deficient and it wouldn't alter the results. But then when we do it, someone can come in here and read this like, well, they did it in their study and they had plenty of phosphorus in their soil and they still applied phosphorus. Why can't I do it? So I'm, I'm not I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I think you could easily get it published by simply saying that. The soil phosphorus was found to be at adequate levels, therefore no starter fertilizer was applied, and you'd still see the same results. But I mean, I get it. You're going to go to this much trouble. You don't want some weird outlier to screw up your study, so you're going to go ahead and apply it anyway just to make sure it's not deficient. I understand that, but I just don't know how I feel about that. Okay, data collected. Let's get to the data collected. Um, fine fescue establishment rate was calculated from digital images using GraphPad. I've talked about that before. I love GraphPad. Grid counts for percentages of fine fescue cover were collected after winter. Okay. On these dates, est estimates of fine fescue turf were taken using a modification of the vertical point quadratic method. So basically, well, I'm not going to cut through all this and just explain what they did. So what they what you do is you take a grid that has the little lines in it that you probably made in, <laughs> by yourself <laughs> using a PVC pipe or whatever and some string. And every time you put that, you just randomly put that on the plot. And every time, the, the, and it comes up with it, so many intersects. And this one, oh, this one had 100. So he mentions it right here. This one has 100 intersects. So the lines cross each other 100 times on that grid. And wherever they, they cross, if at that location, if, that, if at that intersection, in this case, he's counting um, fine fescue was present under each intersection so he's if if fine fescue was was under one of those intersections it was counted as a one as yes and then you can come up with a percentage of the of the grid that had fine fescue that's how you that's how they did it okay so if 80 percent of the intersects had fine fescue under it then it was 80 percent established is the way oh wait 80 percent yeah it was 80 this is they're doing the, the established yeah they were they were Yeah, that, so they were doing um, 
percentage of fine fescue cover. Okay, that's what they're doing with the intersect method. That's how they do. That's how we do it. That's a rather tedious way of doing it. There's other ways of doing it, but it's very accurate, I guess. So, additional data included fi visual fine fescue cover, zero to one hundred percent, just by visually looking at it. Visual winter annual weed and annual bluegrass cover, zero to one hundred percent, and then visual turf grass quality. We've talked about before. They did six as minimal, which is standard nowadays. Uh, and that's it for that. So they did quality and cover. It's basically a short way of saying that. Okay. So let's get to the table three, get into the results here. <coughs> so just to set the stage, we have three locations. We're, we're applying different rates of nitrogen and we have clover or not clover. And we have several different, we have four or five, we have five, uh, one, two, three, we have four different fat, fine fescue cultivars. And so we're trying to figure out, they're trying to figure out at what nitrogen rate would an acceptable establishment be. And then, then this was days until 90% establishment is what they deem to be the, the metric they're using. Uh, at what nitrogen rate would result in that? And, um, and, and also would the inclusion of clover have an impact or a benefit in any ways? That's what we want to know. So at the end of this study, we hope to find you need to apply this much nitrogen. If you apply this much more nitrogen, you either will or will not see a, a better response. And that's what we're going to find out right now. Okay. So days until establishment, we see in this case, we want the lower numbers are better. Okay. So zero, zero nitrogen resulted in 55 days. So say you know, 55 days to a step to 90% establishment. When you added a half a pound, that 55 dropped to 43 and it was statistically significant. I would say that's clearly biologically significant as well. Okay. That's almost two weeks, 10 to 12 days, whatever it is. When you add a pound in, so you will from a half a pound to a pound, you do see a statistical reduction in the time it takes to establish from 43 to 439, 40. Okay. That's three days. I don't know if that's biologically significant, but I'll, I'll say, it. let's just go with it and say, yes, it is. It's statistical. And let's just say it's biological. You gain, you gain another three days of establishment by applying a pound. But a greater than this, look, greater than this pound, you go from one pound to a pound and a half to two pounds to four, that's no way, that's two and a half pounds, whatever total that is. I can't do this all in my head quick enough. You don't see any difference between those higher rates and the one pound rate, okay? So you, what this is saying is you can apply one pound in at, a, at establishment and you're going to get the the highest rate of establishment that you would achieve even if you applied up to two or two and a half pounds of in whatever this rate is 122 or so let's say two and a half pounds in you're going to get the same establishment rate so this table alone let me do that math so i'm not getting the wrong number yeah two and a half pounds in this this if you just looked at this table alone you can walk away under similar conditions and and feel confident that if you're out there in your business and you're applying two pounds of in an establishment because you're trying to get your yards grown in quicker this is showing with these fine fescues and the under the conditions of these studies, and this says data was combined across five experimental runs. Okay, that you don't need to apply two pounds in. You don't need to apply two and a half pounds in. You don't need to apply one and a half pounds in. <laughs> you can just apply one pound. You can really probably apply a half a pound, and whatever establishment you're going to get in terms of increasing the rate relative to not applying anything you're gonna get it from that one pound you're not gonna get any more appreciable increase at all 
from applying more and more nitrogen under conditions similar to this study with these turf grass species that they investigated, okay? That's sort of the take-home message from Table 3. It's critical to understand that. Half a pound's probably good enough. A pound might get you a little bit more, but no more than that, okay? So whether you're, I've talked to you about it before, if you're, whether you're a tree-hugging hippie or whether you're a, you know, a capitalist businessman, it's, it's the same message to both of you. It's going to save you money by applying less. And if you don't care about the money and you care about nature and all these other things, that's great. It's going to save, it's going to reduce the risk by applying less nitrogen. So re- save yourself some money, reduce the risk of environmental impairment, apply less nitrogen, no more than a pound in this case, probably a half a pound is what I would do. And you're fine. Okay. Now, when they applied, when they didn't apply any nitrogen, and they just did the clover, okay, the annual clover didn't do anything relative to nothing. So it's the same as applying no nitrogen. Now, the perennial clover did reduce establishment by about five days, six days, something like that. There was a little bit of benefit to applying using the perennial clover, okay? But it, it was not better than applying a half pound in. You can see this number right here, 49 is a B, and this one here is 43.1 is a C. So half pound in still doing a better job than the clover, but the clover did provide, the perennial clover did provide some benefit relative to doing nothing. Okay? Let's continue. I got a whole bunch of highlighted, and I'm going to get through this. Um, <clears throat> I just explained this, this whole thing right here, I just got through explaining, so I'm not going to go over it again. The... Overall, okay, uh, yeah, so I just explained this. So during the first eight, week, eight weeks, 24 and a half was what you wanted to do. After planning increased establishment, and in levels higher than 49 provided negligible benefits. That's what I just explained. Um, let's see, where was I going to go with this? Yeah, so there's less... Uh, uh, what they're saying here, based on our scatter plots, the standard error of the okay. Let me explain what they're doing. There is less variability in the treatment means. So, um, let me see if I can explain this. Um, let me just read it and then I'll explain it. For, okay. So, furthermore, Figure One B, which is this one right down here, this figure right. Oh, I can't highlight it. This figure right here. Figure 1B displays the effects of six fertility treatments, not including the clover treatments, on percentage of green vegetation cover as time advances from 28 to 42 or 70 days after planting. Based on scatter plots, the standard error of the mean, there is less variability in the treatment means when increasing infertility above half a pound in. So, which may provide greater probability of a successful establishment of fine fescues when planted at low input sites. So what there... <laughs> So this, so what they're saying here is, you know what? Let me just skip through that. It, basically, what he's saying is, is that there's there's less there's less variability, and there's there's a greater probability of establishment based upon the amount of nitrogen that you applied. I don't know why I highlighted that. I'm sorry. Let me skip to the next one. When a quick release fertilizer in fertilizer was utilized at seeding, followed by a slow release fertilizer for all additional in fertilizer applications at four and eight weeks, then 
results demonstrate that applying greater than one pound of N during the first eight weeks provided negligible establishment benefits with fine. So that's what I mentioned. So you can apply a pound and then you can apply slow release after that and you apply a little bit more after that and it doesn't really do you any benefit. An enhanced infertility effect may have been observed if a quick release infertilizer was utilized at all application timing instead of a slow release fertilizer. So, however, for the research, so what they're saying is because they applied a slow release after the, first, the, the quick release, um, it might have been too slow to start releasing and provide its value or provide the, 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 the turf with, with nitrogen because it was slow. It kind of takes time to get started, usually anywhere from like 7 to 14 days, depending on the fertilizer. It takes to kind of get that nitrogen to release. And they're saying if they just use um, quick, maybe there would be a benefit, but they didn't do that. They don't know. So you have to do research to figure that out. But um, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of doing slow release. And, I'll, and during establishment, I'll tell you why. It's not that it won't work. Slow release nitrogen definitely will work during establishment. But um, and I've done this. I don't know how many times uh, you, you have to know what slow release nitrogen source you're using and you have to know how that nitrogen source releases given your location okay so if you go out with two pounds of nitrogen from a you know a 40 polymer coat you are not going to be happy with that okay <laughs> but if you go out with two two pounds of uh two pounds of nitrogen from a 44 and a half you will be probably be happy with that so the reason i don't really recommend it too much is because not uh, there's not a lot of people who really understand it to that level. I don't mean to speak down, but it's just like even many turf managers really don't give it that much thought. They'll just go out and throw out whatever they have or slow release. And they, they get, if they don't get the rate right, then the customer is not going to be happy. It's not going to grow in at the rate they're looking for, or or it's going to grow in, it's going to exhaust it. It, it. There's just too many variables. Whereas with a, with a soluble, one, it's much less expensive. But two, <clears throat> I know when I put that out, it's going to be available pretty quick. And I also know I'm probably going to come back in two or three weeks and put out a little bit more anyway. So if you know what you're doing with slow release materials and you know how it releases, you know, the rate of release, you know, the coating thickness, or you, if it's a, if it's a reactive nitrogen, you know exactly what's going on, the temperatures and all these things, and you're comfortable and you know that you need to apply one pound or two pounds or three pounds in with this product at this time on this grass, you know, at this location, then, then it will work and it will work very well. But if you don't know what you're doing, it's, you know, you're, you're, you might have egg on your face before you know it. So be careful. Okay, guys and gals. <clears throat> okay. Considering all the sites had high soil organic matter, the results from the study may not necessarily apply, translate to sites with poor soils, <clears throat> lacking organic matter at sites with poor soils one additional nitrogen greater than um, one pound during the first eight weeks of planting could pr prove beneficial. So what he's doing here, and I wish I had Ross on here. I was asking him, I think he's leaving himself an open door. <laughs> That's what that is. So I don't mean, you know, maybe, maybe he's not, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but basically what he's saying is, is that we, we only needed a pound, but we had organic matter in our soils. And so if you don't have organic matter in soils, you might need more than a pound. So if some, you know, politician comes by and starts writing laws based upon this article, he's going to say, well, this article said you only need a pound. So I'm not going to let any more than a pound go on an establishment. But writing something like this in an article kind of gives you an open door and say, well, I said one pound, but our site had organic matter. So if you don't have organic matter, you need to allow for more nitrogen potentially. 
Now, there's nothing, there's nothing really wrong with that, but I just, I'm a little bit cynical when I see these things. I'm like, I think, I think that's probably what was going on in, in Ross's mind, but I don't want to speak for him. I, I actually wanted to have him on tonight, but, um, he wasn't able to make it. So maybe I can get him on in a future time and we can talk about it more. Okay. Continue. Let's continue. Inclusion of clover as a cover or companion crop with fine fescues decreased the rate of establishment compared with applying a half a pound. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm applying with greater than or equal than a half a pound, which is indicated by the greater number of establishment days until 90% and smaller hill, hill slope values in table three. Okay. So actually including the, the clover reduced it. Where does that hit in table three? <clears throat> Did I miss that? Um, decrease the rate of establishment curve with volume. Okay. Yeah. Which is in case. Okay. So with a similar establishment rate, while a similar establishment rate was observed between the annual clover crop and the non-treated zero fine fescue plots, perennial clover included with fine fescues provided slightly. Okay. I already talked about that. So when you claim perennial clovers provided some benefit. Okay. The annual clovers did not compare to doing nothing. Incorporating legumes, white clover or other clovers in turf and other crops provides the ability to utilize atmospheric nitrogen and improve soil nitrogen levels and reduce the dependency on supplemental infertilization. They just, just, that's the point of them using it is like, you know, if we can use clover instead of buying fertilizer, then, then why not? And now if you're going to, the plant's going to still use the same type of nitrogen the nitrogen from the clover is still going to mineralize and still be in the soil for the plant to take up. So it's not like you're, you know, providing some sort of, you know, a natural organic and all the world's going to be great because we're using clover. That's not necessarily the case, but if it will provide greater establishment or greater turf and I don't have to buy the fertilizer, then that's a win. You know, I don't have to spend money on it. That's a win, but they didn't really see a whole, a, a great deal of benefit. They saw some marginal benefits using the perennial clover, but not from the annual clover compared to doing nothing. So here's the hypothesis. Our hypothesis was that two treatments containing clover would benefit the fine fescue turf by fixation and transfer of nitrogen from the legume to the turf during establishment. However, days until 90% establishment in the hill slope values indicate the two clover inclusion treatments had similar or only slightly better establishment rates than non-fertilized plots. Okay. Furthermore, the two clover inclusion treatments did not hasten establishment when compared with fertility treatments of a greater than or equal to a half a pound in. Okay, so what they're basically saying is the clover didn't do much. There's not much benefit to including clover under these conditions if you're looking to a hasten establishment. Okay, there really wasn't much. Now, I, you could make an argument, well, what if you applied it um, for, <clears throat> for 10, 20 years, you had the clover there for two decades or whatever, well, that's different. I mean, clearly if you just had an open field and it was all clover and you built a house on it and you wanted to establish turf and you just killed the clover and it had been there for 10, 20, 30 years, constantly building up nitrogen, then that might be a different situation and there may be some benefit there. But in these conditions where they went in and they planted these things, they didn't show a benefit at all. So maybe, maybe it's a time thing. Maybe didn't have time to build it up. Who knows what, but there wasn't a benefit that they were able to measure. Doesn't the clover have to die before the N is released? I've never heard of that gray. That was a question in chat. Um, it, it, I don't know. I'm not a clover expert. I'm not a, I'm, uh, I'm not a legume expert. Um, I maybe, maybe gray. I, I don't, I don't know. So maybe someone can look that up while I'm uh, here and put it in chat. If you can find a source for that, does the, does the legume have to 
die in order for the nitrogen to become available or can the clover still be living? I, I don't know. I wish I did. <clears throat> so LW, LW50 had the same question. It, it may be true. Yeah, the, the, the more, keep in mind guys, I'm doing this live and the more live videos I do, the, the quicker you will realize that I know very, very little about, about anything other than my little bitty lane of turf grass. So, um, so I, I, <laughs> I try to stay in my lane, right? I have, I have this conversation with a, another colleague of mine. I was like, every time I step one, you know, I'm in my lane. Somebody asks me, oh, what about potassium and, and disease resistant? And so I go, I want to get out of my lane a little bit because it's diseases, but it's potassium. And every time I stick a foot outside my lane, I get ran over. And it's like, I should just stay in your lane, you know? <laughs> and so that's what, that's what I tend to do. I'm, I'm not, I'm not well versed in all these aspects. And so you'll, you'll learn that real quick. So I wish, I wish it was not the case, I guess, but, um, okay, let's continue. So the final cover annual brew. Uh, so they also did annual bluegrass invasion because, um, well, I'll just explain. He explains right here. Annual bluegrass invasion is one of the problematic weed pests of fine fescues. Okay. The faster establishment of the three uh, Festucaruba taxa compared with hard fescue resulted in similar annual bluegrass cover of less than 5%. Among the three subspecies in less annual bluegrass invasion than hard fescue at both rating dates. So what they're saying is, is that the we don't, we don't really want annual bluegrass. Okay, that's generally considered a weed. And so the quicker you grow it in, the, the thought is the less annual bluegrass um, invasion that you're going to have. And so they're saying that the, um, the diff, there was differences among the turfgrass cultivars and species um, on how much uh, annual bluegrass actually was able to get um, established during the grow-in. So there were differences, albeit minor, in annual bluegrass cover among fertility and cover crop program treatments at both rating dates. So... So the annual bluegrass, so over here on the right, I'm looking at table four on the right, we have the percent cover of annual bluegrass and you'll see <clears throat> that the uh, hard fescues here, the hard fescue had 11.8% cover of, of annual bluegrass. Whereas the chewing fescue, the slender creeping red fescue and the strong creeping red fescue had less annual bluegrass. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm, I'm inferring from what he said here is that um, this would be uh, seen as a benefit of using the red fescues and the chewing fescue because it had they had less annual bluegrass infestation after as after establishment. Okay. Um, so this is a oh these are grid counts so percent cover. Uh, I thought there was a quality rating. Oh, Okay, I thought I thought there was. Okay, so there's a May grid count fine fescue turf cover and the June grid count turf cover. I could have sworn there was something else in here, but I don't see it now. Okay, anyway. So basically what this is saying, the fertility and cover crop program, here's the fertility treatments, zero all the way up to 122 kilograms of nitrogen. And you see that the in May, the, the grid count fine fescue turf cover is all the same from 76 to 79. They're all statistically the same. And they are the, uh, the same as the annual clover resulted in the same cover, but the perennial resulted in less cover. So um, obviously we want to have this 100%, the higher number in this case would be better. And this is showing again, further evidence that the 
higher rates of nitrogen aren't particularly better. And you go to June, that was in May, you go to June and you see the same thing essentially is that the uh, zero and the 24 and 49, all these are all the same. They're all, they all have B's and then the annual bluegrass had an A here. So again, the higher and higher nitrogen rates aren't resulting in a, a common in a benefit to you. We're coming down to the end here, guys. <coughs> I'm going to get this done in less than a minute. Oh, let me read the, any, anytime you want to put compliments in the chat, feel free. I, I'm, it, it helps feed my vanity. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so the comment is you're good doc. Some of us need a tour guide for research. <laughs> so, okay. All right. Well, I appreciate the compliment. Um, okay. So as, as mentioned, there was only a slight increase in rapidity of establishment once fertility levels increased above 24, half a pound in, and there were no differences in speed of establishment between treatments from one pound in all the way up to two, two and a half pounds in. So there, it says, therefore, increasing infertility above one pound in during establishment and fine fescues during autumn may likely start to become more detrimental than beneficial, especially with higher infertility at which point we observed no beneficial increase in establishment rate during the autumn, but higher annual bluegrass invasion the following summer. Okay. Final, final, further, final turf coverage, eight and nine um, months after planting. What's MAP? I guess that's months after planting. Let me make sure I'm right here. Where's the acronym chart? Usually they have an acronym chart at the top. No, I don't see it. I'm sure that's month after planting. Was similar among infertility treatments, not considering clover treatments, which demonstrated that gains in initial establishment when the first 56 days after planting were short-lived. So this is kind of what, I'm, I, re, I know why I highlighted this, because what he's, <clears throat> this last sentence here is saying that eight and nine months after planting, all the fertility treatments resulted in the same establishment, the same cover. <clears throat> and that's one reason why I don't get me personally, I'm not talking about me as a scientist, but me as a homeowner, I could care less about how rapidly it grows in unless I'm late, you know, unless I'm trying to get it seeded in October or something. And then I'm trying to get it grown in before it stops, before it freezes or something. I, would, I don't know why I would do that, but I don't particularly care about the rate it grows in. Okay. To me, it's not a race, okay? And we're just trying to result in an acceptable quality turf grass stand or acceptable quality lawn or whatever. And I know, yeah, you can gain a week or two weeks or three weeks or whatever at the beginning by putting all these resources into it and all this extra stuff. But at the end of the day, in a, in, in this case, eight months after, it's all going to be the same anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, you can hasten it and you can reduce the pesticide inputs. Maybe you can reduce some of the weed infestations. Maybe, sure. You know, I'm not saying you can't. There's not a benefit to it. There's a benefit to it. But to me, I don't value that benefit near as much as I value my money. <laughs> I'd, ra I'd rather save my money, you know, do do the least I need to do to put in to get the grass to grow in and it's going to grow in just fine at some point maybe it's a two or three weeks later than your lawn maybe whatever but in a couple months it's going to be the same anyway and that's exactly what he's saying here so um you know I've mentioned this before is that I, I think I'm glad when I see scientists 
take a step back and actually put practical information like this in here. He didn't have to write that, you know, he could have published this without writing that sentence, but it just, he just says, you know, eight months afterwards, they were all the same. <laughs> so, you know, any benefit during the establishment was short lived. So, you know, to me, it's like, well, why do it? You know, anyway. Okay. Establishment rate of all, this is in the conclusions. We're coming down to the end. And you can see I highlighted dang near the, all the whole conclusion thing because this is good information. You know, I don't want to skip over. I find it all fascinating, but I'm trying just to highlight the, the, the key points. But some of this is just too good. Establishment rate of all four fine fescue taxa improves with the application of a half pound to one pound of N during the first eight weeks after planting. And N levels higher than that, higher than one pound, during the first two months after planting provides negligible benefits in establishment rate and final turf cover and may likely increase invasion of annual bluegrass when seeding during autumn. So I, I'm sorry, I skipped past that. The annual bluegrass is right here. So the annual bluegrass ratings, as you can see in, in this column here, when you have zero nitrogen, it's 3.3. When you go up to 122, you're dealing with 8% of the plot infested with annual bluegrass so this would be the detrimental effect he's talking about i'm sorry i skipped over that i had it highlighted but i missed it so the more and more nitrogen you put into it the more likely you're going to have infestation of, a, of an undesirable plant in this case it's annual bluegrass okay so you can cut that eight percent almost in half to four and a half percent by simply applying the half a pound in which that may not be in you know priority for you but that's what he's saying you can in more and more you put in you're not gaining much and in fact you're you're increasing the opportunity for weeds to come in and thrive in summary these results combined with the recent literature by braun who <laughs> i'm gonna keep okay i'm just gonna move on oh there's a typo there i didn't see that until just now there's a there's a parenthesis here as a typo Anyway, the recent literature by Braun et al. can provide best management practices for fine fescue establishment as follows. So here we go. This is important. So these are the best management practices according to a little bit of literature review. I'm not sure what's in, this, in, the, in the conclusions, but whatever. When seeded in autumn, the rate of establishment of strong creeping red fescue and chewing fescues is similar to tall fescue and faster than Kentucky bluegrass. And he, he cites uh, uh, himself in <laughs> 2021. <clears throat> the optimum seeding time for fine fescue mixtures is in the late summer or early autumn months of August and September in cool season climate zones in the United States with a wider seeding window in the Mediterranean climate. Okay. <clears throat> so there he goes. He tells you the, the, the ideal time to, to seed. It's not in this paper. He cited another paper, but that's the ideal time to seed. Fine fescues may show minimal to no response to the application of phosphorus at seeding, especially on high-quality topsoil. And he has another citation. And, and I'm sorry, Ross. Just bear with me. It's my AD, It's my OCD here. We don't normally allow citations in the conclusions. It's very rare that we because these are all. This should be in the introduction. This should be in the literature review and the introduction. And the conclusions are reserved for what you found within this paper. But nevertheless, I highlighted it because it's important information. And that's, he's saying that fine fescue show minimal to no response from the application of phosphorus. Okay. Especially when the topsoil is a good quality topsoil. Applications of N during the first eight weeks after planting fine fescue seed should range from a half pound to one pound. 
in soils with high organic matter and in fertilizer levels greater than one pound during the first eight weeks after planting may become more detrimental than beneficial in the long term. Okay, last sentence, and then I'm going to come back and sum this all up. Lastly, in conclusion of clover with the fine, uh, in conclude, hang on. Lastly, inclusion of clover with fine fescue may slow the rate of establishment, but does not reduce the final establishment of strong creeping red fescue, slender red fescue, tune, da, da, da. Overall, results indicate it may be beneficial to provide more nitrogen fertilization, half a pound to a pound, during the first eight weeks of establishment to promote a faster growing of fine fescue tax or low input sites, and then nitrogen fertilizer levels can be reduced to a low fertility program, a half a pound to two pounds per year in the long term. Okay, so, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I really, I mean, I really like this language. I just, I kind of, I kind of just wish he would have put it in the, in the literature review, but Nevertheless, the point is the, the the point of this paper is this is that they apply to uh, if you're going to apply fine fescues under similar conditions is what they applied here, and you're going to use you're going to apply nitrogen if if hastening the rate of establishment is important to you, then applying more than one pound at seeding is not going to help. So, what will help you as a businessman or woman? is to take that advice go back to your shop let me put me back on here take that advice go back to your shop and eliminate or reduce the nitrogen that you're applying under similar conditions to the one pound max and i would argue even a half pound but the one pound max during establishment is more than enough you don't need to apply anymore save that money okay now, he summed up some literature at the end saying that after that one pound is, is applied at, a, at seeding, you can then, for these low-input grasses, proceed to follow a normal management nitrogen management program of a half a pound to two pounds annually. Okay. So I would say this is for these locations. Be aware, this is fine fescue for these locations. All right. You might find the nitrogen rates to vary based upon where you're growing the grass but but more than two pounds in the in his setting which was in indiana and what was it wisconsin and oregon or washington wherever well or i guess it was oregon is is apparently the maximum that they recommend i don't know if that's true but the maximum they're going to recommend is two pounds a, a year for these low input grasses okay so <coughs> That's the summation of this of this paper. Half a pound to a pound during establishment. Don't need to apply more. The clover didn't really help much. It, it probably wasn't worth the input. Uh, there was very little benefit to imply, including the clover. There was a detrimental effect to applying more nitrogen due to the increased presence of poa annual or annual bluegrass. Okay. Okay, let's get uh, go back and see if I missed anything in the chat. Um... Oh, I see Aldo made it. Good. Thank you. Welcome, Aldo. Sorry you were a little bit late, but better late than never. Um, hmm. So, uh, so Eric Sands, whom I, I, so I am not paying anything for these, these paper breakdowns, getting information I can use and how I might be able to spend less on inputs. I, I guess that's good. <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
I just appreciate you guys showing up and participating in the chat. I, I, I started this a couple of weeks ago or whatever it was. And I told my wife, I was like, I think I'm going to get online and start, you know, helping people out a little bit because there's a, there's a gap between science and applied knowledge, you know, and, and you guys using the applied knowledge, they're out making money and doing your businesses and paying your bills and hiring employees and paying taxes and all these things. And you don't have time to sit here and goof around with all this literature stuff, but you need to know the information and scientists, no offense. I was one of them. I still am one of them. Okay. But there's nowhere. <laughs> I can tell you this with a great deal of certainty. There is nowhere on a tenure and promotion packet that says, how many YouTube videos did you put out explaining to the late to the average person how your information can be used? That's that doesn't exist. <laughs> so so scientists aren't going to gain anything from spending the time doing this. And I, I get it. I was you know, I was in their shoes, too. You know, you're busy with grad students and grants and committees and all this other stuff, you know. So in the middle somewhere, I think, is where I'm trying to figure out a, a, a little void for me to, to help people out. So hopefully it's helping. Uh, wrapping this thing up. So tomorrow, um, I'm, we had 10, nine or 10 people here today. Um, my wife is gone tomorrow too. So I can do this tomorrow night rather than tomorrow morning. If you want to do it in the morning, I don't know if it's, is it better for you guys? I don't know how to, how to get a response from you all, if you're still here or not, but if it's better for you all in the evening, I'll try to do it tomorrow evening. If you'd rather do it in the morning, I mean, I guess you can say so in chat and I'll try to do it in the morning rather than the evening. But, um, I can't always do it in the evening, but I can today and tomorrow. So, um, I'll, uh, I'll give it some thought, send me an email or send me a text or, you know, whatever, let me know. Otherwise I, I, I don't know if it's going to be in the morning or the evening, but I will do another one tomorrow and tomorrow's, um, let me see if I can find tomorrow's, uh, article is awesome. It is, going to be, um, oh, I must save that one for Monday. Cause that one's, that one's too difficult. That one's, that one's really super important. I don't want to go over it. Um, oh yeah. Tomorrow's there. Oh yeah. You know what? Good call Aldo. I, I don't know if it's Aldo or Aldo. I apologize. Good call on that. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, the grass factor guys are doing their, their thing tomorrow and I'm all, I'm all for that. So I, I won't, I won't interrupt them or try to compete with them. There's no, they're not worried about me. I, I don't have anywhere near their, their, their viewers, but, um, but I'll, I'll let them do their thing and I'll do it in the morning. Okay. So, and then I'll see what I can do about maybe doing another one next week, but, to, but tomorrow morning I'll do another one at, at so I'll do it at 10 AM tomorrow morning <coughs> and I'm going to do a quick one tomorrow. It's a quick short one and it's date of seeding effects establishment on cool season turf grasses by, um, this one is by Zach Riker and Clark Throssell, and it's a short one. It, it's going to be in and out. It'll be 30, 40 minutes, I promise. It's a very, very short paper, but it talks about the, the date of seeding and how it affects establishment of cool season turf grasses, so whether you seed it in September, October, November, December, and how that all the way through to May, you know, what date, what month do you seed it? How does that affect the establishment of those grasses? So that's what we'll talk about tomorrow morning um, at 10 a.m. Eastern time. So, um so anyway, I really appreciate everybody showing up. Thank you for all the comments. Thank you for participating. It really, really does mean a lot to me that you guys are using this information. That That's really what motivates me to do it is knowing that somebody out there finds this information useful and and, and hopefully you, you use it. And if there's anything that's confusing or you want a more 
detail on, please, by all means, let me know. I, I, I make mistakes like everybody makes mistakes. So, you know, I'll do my best to answer what I can and, um, and we'll, we'll see where this thing leads us to. Okay. Keep, keep looking for the answer. How do we know what we know about turf grass science? And, um, I haven't found it yet, but I'm still searching for that answer. How do we know what we know? Appreciate everybody showing up. All right. See you guys tomorrow morning. Ciao.